This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Rensbank, here we are, episode 111, and this is uh, we're doing a special drop on this one. It's a pretty cool podcast. Yeah, it's uh, quite the big deal as of late. There's a buzz in the air in the mountain hunting community, and uh, Justin Kaluski lets us know what's going on. So the Chadwick Graham, the Milo Hansen buck, the Justin Kaluski billy, like uh, this thing is a giant, the new world record billy goat. Blew the old one out of the water by three inches. Um, just just a freak of nature for a massive goat. Oh, seeing that thing in person too down at Sheep Show, it's just, you look at it and you, it doesn't make sense to your eyes. You're like, this thing's huge. It's over 12 inches in length, six-inch bases. Like, doesn't look like it belongs in North America. Well, that's the thing. This um, he says on the podcast. He talks about uh, is it like this is from Africa or whatever? And like I, I look at that and it reminds me of like a I don't know some sort of African antelope a kudu or something. Like obviously not directly, but it just it just doesn't add up. It just looks so unique. Oh, exactly. And then you know the listening to the passion in his voice when he's talking about it, and you know he wants to do better for conservation with it and use it as a tool and his new found stardom so to speak is move the move the needle on conservation in our province it's inspiring listening to him well that was the thing you know down in reno i just started chatting with him about it and and you could just hear he's fired up and and uh and this is such a unique opportunity right like he's going to get all the all the uh i guess the glory of being the number one guy and and doing it for the right reason. And you talked about him there. He talked about, uh, you know, Fair Chase Magazine, the Boone and Crockett guys uh, are going to, they, they, they've got the exclusive story and uh, he wants the proceeds from that story to go to conservation. So just giving back and like, man, we need more guys like that in our world, right? Oh, definitely. That, I don't Passionate's the least you can say. Passionate, humble, excited. Like there's a fire in that guy. And it's it's exciting to see what's going to come of this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's a young guy too, so see what he does in the in the next ten or twenty years. But you know, it, it's one of those things that you know that Chadwick Graham. There, how how often do we talk about will that record ever be broken? Um, you know, ninety percent of the people I talk to think it never will be. Ten percent think, oh yeah, probably or maybe. Uh, but. Uh, to, to beat the next biggest goat all time by three inches, um, you know, fifth, going from over just, what, 57 and a half to 60 and a half, it's insane. Insane. Well, and what did he say? He was told it's, you know, it's 5% bigger than second place, which when you put it in percentage-wise, that's incredible. Like, that's, that's a huge yeah. leap. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, this is a great podcast, episode 111, Justin Kaluski, and uh, we talk about the new world record billy goat out of British Columbia and uh, Region 6, and he did give Greg and I the GPS coordinates. If you listen closely, they're in there somewhere. You have to listen right to the very end, though. <laughs> okay, yeah, sh- maybe he didn't give us coordinates. Share but. it with all your friends, too, so they listen as well. And <laughs> Yeah. 
So, uh, and, uh, and hats off to, to Justin. You talk about the long day they had and how they killed this thing and, and what was involved. And, uh, definitely they put the sweat equity in and they earned this thing. And, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool podcast to, to catch up with them. So enjoy episode 111 with Justin Kaluski. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, awesome to have you on, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So you're getting a little notoriety lately. I don't know. There's something happening in your world that's kind of changed things a little bit. What's what's it like to be that guy? Uh, I'm not really used to uh, all the attention, to be honest with you. Um, kind of just by nature, I'm a bit of a quiet guy. I just go about my business, uh, do my own thing. Um, it's been pretty surreal. Uh, it's, it's been, uh, really enjoyable actually getting to talk to and meet so many different people, um, within the hunting community that I never would have met otherwise. So it's, it's been a great opportunity to sort of network and branch out and meet a bunch of new people. Yeah, so Greg and I had the good fortune of meeting you down at the Wild Sheep Foundation Sheep Week, and um, I think that was your first time down there. Now, were you down there because of this, because they were scoring that that goat down there, or, or was it just you were going down anyway? Uh, originally, I was supposed to head to Montana, to the Boone and Crockett headquarters down in Montana. Um, we were going to do the scoring panel there, um, Justin Spring, uh, one of the directors for Boone and Crockett actually phoned me back about a week later and said, Hey, uh, I actually got this other opportunity if you're in for it. And he's like, it's a, it's a bit of a, a drive, but if you'd like to come down to the, to the sheep show in Reno, we'd love to have you. And, um, we'll have all the judges down there and we got a booth set up. So you're more than welcome to hang out with us and stroll around, check out the show. Um, but it just seems like I've always wanted to go to the the sheep show, obviously. Um, being an avid sheep hunter, it's always been on my list. And once this happened and I got that invite, it really wasn't uh, too difficult of a decision to make. Uh, getting to get that goat scored and share it with so many other hunters and people that really appreciate it was was pretty special. Well, Justin, that's one thing with Greg and I, when we met you, you were at the booth and we've been corresponding with you trying to put this podcast together. And there's a lot of good words coming out of your mouth about sharing, about conservation, about giving back, about, you know, telling your story so we can help, you know, mountain species, goats and sheep. Um, so it's really inspiring. And I want to talk about all that, but, uh, you know, yeah, you've really thrust yourself into limelight with killing the new world record mountain goat. And it's absolutely a slob. So, um, you know, just tell us a little bit about the goat itself. I want to hear about the whole story, how you killed it, where you got, and, and I can't wait to hear all about, it. but tell us, just give us a description of what this thing looks like and, and sort of how you see it as the, as the guy that harvested it. 
Um, <clears throat> well, as you know, mountain goats, uh, it's pretty well known. They're, they're difficult to judge in the field. Um, if you've looked over the, the record or the, the top 10 goats over the last um, close to 100 years now, I believe, each time they get beat, it's just by the narrowest of margins, literally by eighths or quarter or half inches. Um, this thing is unique. I'll just put it that way. Um, it was pretty funny down at the, at the convention there. There was uh, some folks that were walking by checking it out on the table that uh, were asking if it was from Africa. So that just probably gives you a sense of, of just how big it is. Um, it's 12 and 7 eighths. Each, uh, each horn measures out 12 and 7 eighths, and it had uh, six and a half inch bases. So uh, pretty impressive uh, set of headgear on them there. When you walked up to it originally, did you know how special that goat was? Or did you just think, I got a cranker? I, I just figured I had a cranker, yeah. I don't I don't walk around with a tape measure in my pocket, so um, there would be no way of knowing, obviously. Uh, but I definitely knew it was special. Yeah, awesome. So um, just for our listeners, you, you know, you talked eights and quarters. We're not talking eights and quarters. This is three inches bigger than the number two in prior years, right? I, that's is right. That, am I correct in that? Yeah, that's so right. It's so now you you've kind of obviously had to get it CI'd. Um, you've you've had Boone and Crockett have their hands on it. A lot of scrutiny around it. Um, have Bios said anything about you know like obviously good forage, good genetics, you know low pressure, like all the right stuff, but. Did, did they say this is like a freak of nature that'll, is it the Chadwick Ram of the goats that it'll never be beat or what, well, what's the I've, consensus? I've heard that analogy uh, a few times. It, that's not anything that I'm putting out there that I, that I'm willing to put my name on, but I have had a handful of people come to me and say that that mountain goat is to goats what the Chadwick Ram is to stone sheep. Um, they said you'll most likely be, uh, in your grave and that record will still be standing. I mean, only time will tell, but, uh, I'd like to think so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so w- what are we calling this thing? Are we calling it the Kluski goat? The, what, what, what's uh, the Kluski bill? Or the judge, what are we calling it? Uh, you know what? I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that up to everyone else to, to, uh, decide. Um, I'm just, I'm just uh, happy to to have been blessed with such a amazing animal and uh, all this all this other stuff the the magazines and the interviews and podcasts and stuff is just uh, icing on the cake for me. Um, you know, I'm I'm out there because I love nature. I love hunting. It's where I feel most at home. Uh, it's where I I connect and I feel grounded and I feel good and. Uh, it's just where I'm truly happy and uh, it feels like um, it's just kind of what I was born to do. So I'm just following my heart. <laughs> uh, that's, that's awesome. And I'm super stoked for you, man. I, I, so let's hear about the story. And I know this story goes back years. Like you're a mountain hunter through and through. Um, and I know you've told me like sheep is in your blood and, and obviously 
goats are too, but I know you're a sheep hunter for years. And then, so from what I understand though, this story goes back a couple of years that you, you know, this, you, you'd seen a, a big goat two years prior that set up this. So let's, let's go way back um, to, to how this happened and, and let's hear all the gory details. And if you get to, too sketchy. Of, I'm not going to ask you for GPS coordinates, but that's the only thing I'm not going to ask okay, you for. Okay, <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's funny when you you start reminiscing on on all the factors that had to, uh, or you know, everything that had to align in order for this to actually happen. And <clears throat> when I started thinking about that, um, really, I I ended up moving up to uh, Dees Lake about. Four years ago, um, I was a, a, a an apprentice with BC Hydro, and I volunteered to go up there to, to help on a job. And I had never been to the Cassiars before. I've had the fortune of traveling all over the province and working in some absolutely beautiful remote locations all over BC. And when I drove up that highway into the Cassiars, um, those mountains just grabbed me right by the heart. Uh, there was something about it, the, the, the wildness, the remoteness, the beauty of it all. Something told me that I was going to end up coming back up there to spend more time up there. And I, I had no idea, but an opportunity actually presented itself through work that I was able to take a position up in Dees Lake. And so I packed up everything I owned and traveled 2000 kilometers north and and started carving out a life for myself up in the up in the north it's kind of always a lifestyle that appealed to me living uh off the land you know in tune with nature that kind of stuff and uh built myself a house up there and obviously got out and did a lot of exploring a lot of hiking met some good people up there um the one person i met that uh, turned out to be a really good friend of mine. He invited me out on a a mountain goat hunt about three years ago, and he was relatively new to mountain hunting. And so he was pretty happy to have me along because I had some experience, obviously. And so we went into this spot and we got in there and it was just littered with mountain goats. Like literally from our one uh, glassing location, we were probably sitting on about 30 different goats. And we seen one absolutely enormous Billy, um, but he had probably about 10 or 12 nannies around him. And there was no way we could, there was too many sets of eyes and ears for us to even think about getting close to him. So we decided to let him do his thing. We didn't want to spook him. We didn't want to blow the area out. And we continued up the valley just to check out and see what else was going on up there. And we spotted three billies hanging out together at the back end of this valley. They were, you know, probably three quarters of a kilometer away. So we started making our way towards the back end. And about halfway there, this other billy that we hadn't even seen came up and over uh, from underneath and right out on top in front of me and my friend. And it was raining and it was foggy and it was wet and uh, the scopes were all fogged up and the binos were, you know, pretty, pretty murky. And I lifted up the binos. I looked through them and I was just like, holy cow, bud, take that goat right now. So he ended up making a really nice shot about 300 yards on this goat, anchored him on the hill. It was perfect. He didn't slide down or 
we didn't lose them down below. And that goat um, ended up, I think it made the Boone and Crockett all time. It was uh, 11 and 3 eighths. Um, it had a bit smaller bases, but uh, it, it scored in the low 50s. And it was by far the nicest goat I had ever seen. Um, so with that in mind, I knew that was a location I wanted to go back to one day. Uh, a, there was a ton of mountain goats there. And B, we had actually seen bigger goats in there than the one he managed to harvest. So fast forward three years, uh, this summer, I went up with a, a different friend and we actually went in on a, a backpack stone sheep hunt for a week. And uh, we had a great time, managed to get my, my buddy's first ram under his belt, which was an absolutely amazing experience. Um, we were, we were going to go poke around for another one, but we got uh, run out of there by a grizzly. So we figured we'd just cut our losses and, and get the heck out of there while we still had a, a cape and some meat to pack out. And yeah, we, we packed our way out, had one day of rest and made the drive out and uh, hiked into this, this spot that we had. And uh, yeah, the weather was phenomenal. Uh, we got in there late on the first night, did a bit of glassing, but it was, uh, it was a bit earlier than we had gone uh, three years previous. And there was honestly nothing happening there. There was no goats anywhere. And I, 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 I'm sure I looked like a liar to my friend because I was like, honestly, bud, there's, there was like 40 goats right here. I'm, I swear to God. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. <laughs> so, you know, kind of just went to bed that night and, and hoped that something good would happen in the morning and woke up to another amazing day. It was, it was really hot, like probably 25 degrees, bluebird, no, no, no clouds whatsoever. And we were making our way up the valley to where um, my other friend and I had, had gone. And we were hiking along the ridge. And I'd kind of come to terms with maybe it just wasn't going to happen. Um, for whatever reason, the goats weren't there. They hadn't moved in or they had moved out or I, I don't know. But uh, I just, man, I, I glanced down the hill and I, I, I spotted a, a patch of white. And it was in a really odd spot. Uh, once I lifted the binos up, I could make out it was just the the ass end of a goat. It was sticking out. It had, it had shoved its head way up and underneath this rock cut. And it was hiding from the sun. So, yeah, we <clears throat> basically sat down and, and, and started the waiting game. And... Uh, I think it, we sat there for over four hours. And what time of day did you get on him, Justin? What time did you see him? Was it roughly? Um, I think it was about nine o'clock in the morning. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we were just sitting there, baking in the sun, waiting for this goat to stand up. And uh, yeah, I just honestly, <clears throat> for the first hour or so, I was my adrenaline was cranked pretty good. We couldn't tell what it was, but something just really intuitively told me that it had to be a billy goat in the spot it was in. It was real treacherous and rough. It was all by itself. Um, all I can say is just I had a gut instinct that uh, it was a billy. 
And as the time started to pass, I started just to relax a bit more and, and I started looking around and I was like, oh my God, look at this place. Look how amazing and beautiful this is. Look how I felt so grateful to just be there that for the first time in my life as a hunter, it didn't matter to me even if we got that goat or not. I was literally just that um grateful to just be in such a spectacular beautiful location doing what i love to do that it didn't even matter if 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 we ended up getting a goat and yeah i've never done this before but uh i i actually was compelled to start writing as i was sitting there on top of this goat i whipped out my phone and uh i started writing poetry about a mountain goat So I'll just read this little short uh, poem that I wrote while I was sitting there waiting for this thing to stand up. As I write these words upon this page, smelling scents of aspen and wild sage, the river carves the rocks below, born from ice and melting snow. A land unchanged since time began and not yet spoiled by the hands of man, with white acrobats defying death, the hunter's weight with shallow breath. I pinch myself. It's not a dream. I'm hunting goats on the mighty Stikine. <laughs> that, that's going to stick with your goat forever. I hope you know that. <clears throat> I hope so. Yeah. It's, it's, it's part of the narrative. It's part of the story. Um, when I was done that poem, I, I wrote another one. <laughs> and when I was done that one, I wrote another one. It, uh, I've actually never been so inspired to, uh, to write before. Um, and and you, you've never done that. Like you've never sat on the mountain and done that. Like this, this was just totally out of character. And well, I, I, I like writing. Um, and I, I've, I've written some poetry from time to time, but definitely not right in the middle of a hunt. Um, you know, yeah. usually an afterthought once you're back at camp or back off the mountain, you start a, you, you, you reflect on your experience and and writing about it is is a way to sort of immoralize it or what's the word i'm looking for here um it's a way to like to save that moment in time so that you can look back on it and and treasure it down the road and just as i was writing the 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 last verse of that poem you know periodically i was peeking my head over the edge to see if this this thing had moved or not and over the course of four hours, the sun was obviously moving westward in the sky and the shadows this goat was hiding in were getting progressively closer to it. When finally the, the sun was actually shining on his, on his rear end, he finally desta- uh, decided to stand up and make a, make a move. And it really caught me off guard because usually when an animal's bedded for that long, you know, they'll, they'll stand up, they'll stretch their legs, they'll, they'll have a piss or something. But this thing stood up and just turned and I, I lifted up the binos to get a look at him. I was like, holy cow, that, that's a nice billy, all right. And he just tromped right off. He just like walked right out of our lives, like gone. <laughs> I was just left sitting there like dumbfounded. Like I figured I had this thing in the bank, like, <clears throat> but given the nature of the terrain of where we were hunting, 
Um, as you know, finding a goat is one thing. Finding a goat in a spot where you can shoot, that's that's a whole other ball of wax. So there, there was no way we could have uh, risked a shot where he was. And so he, he marched off <clears throat> out of view, way down below us, down in these like crags and rocks and cliffs. And all you could see was a, a dust cloud blowing up the hillside from the thermals. And I turned and looked at my buddy and I was, I was like, I'm going after him. I loaded up a, a shell, put the safety on and started like inching my way down, probably like a 60 degree slope, um, being really cautious to not like kick any rocks loose or make any noise. And as I got down farther and farther and farther, it got steeper and steeper and steeper until I finally got to a point where it dropped off to a cliff right below me. And just as I'm about to like lean out over the edge and look down at the base of this cliff, I get a whistle from up above. I turn up the hill. I look, there's my buddy standing up at the top of the hill and he's waving his arms around. And then he puts his hands up in front of his face, like in the shape of binoculars. And he starts looking all around like, like he's like glassing or something. And I'm like, put my hands up like I don't get it I don't understand what kind of message you're trying to convey to me here so I I turn around I give him you know I put my finger up like one second I'm just about to look over the edge I turn back around I grab some bushes I lean out over the edge as far as I dare and I peer down over the edge of this cliff nothing oh okay I turn around I look back up for my friend he's gone I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Like, <laughs> so now I'm like, you know, understandably a little bit frustrated, a little bit annoyed, a little bit dejected. I climb back up this steep slope. I get back on top where we're, where we had been sitting and watching him. I'm looking around everywhere for my friend. He's nowhere to be found. I'm like, okay, well, maybe he meant he was going that way to go glass to go try and find this goat. So I start marching the the direction the goat had had sort of went and uh, was hoping to find my friend. And after about 15, 20 minutes of hiking, like I probably covered a good kilometer and a half, no goat, no hunting partner. Um, I'm just like, okay, he could not have gone this far. He wouldn't have gone this far and not waited to, you know, let me know what was going on. So I turn around, I walk all the way back. Lo and behold, I get back to where we were sitting. There he is standing there. I'm like, what, what's up, man? Like, where did you go? He's like, well, when you went down the bank, he said, I went the other way and I was actually able to gain a a, a good sight line um, down below where you were. And he's like, the goat is bedded in a cave right underneath where you were just standing. So when I was standing on top of the cliff, the goat was literally 20 yards right under my feet, but I couldn't see it. And when I turned around to motion back up the hill to give him a, or give me a second, he figured I was going to continue on down the hill and run into this mountain goat face to face stuck in this cave. And so he's, he's got a little bit of a sick sense of humor. Cause he said, well, he's like, I, 
I needed to see that. He's like, I wanted to watch the show. So he ran all the way back to his position where he could see the goat. And then we ended up missing each other. So yeah, it was a, a bit of a, you know what show, uh, it didn't all <laughs> definitely go smooth. There was some hiccups, but you know, I look back on it and, uh, I can laugh and smile and it, it makes a good story. So once he actually told me he knew where the goat was, I couldn't even believe it. I thought the goat was long gone. Um, we ended up going back to where he had seen it. And sure enough, uh, it was bedded in this cave. Super neat. Never seen anything like it before. And yeah, we ended up sneaking down a, a spiny ridge that protruded into the valley, afforded us some good cover, we got down, got set up, and we were straight across from them. Uh, only 164 yards, so pretty much just a chip shot. And uh, I got lined up. I told him to get ready, uh, you know, with the binos to make sh to to watch for if uh, I was making a good shot or not. And uh, he asked me if I was going to let the goat stand up before I shot. And I said, there's no way I'm letting that thing stand up and walk away again. We're going to take him right <laughs> where he is. Um, he was actually in a decent spot. It was on a little ledge inside this cave. So I put three, three shots right into his shoulder. Um, that's typically the best way to anchor them on the hill. But uh, being that he was as big as he was, he, he had enough life left in him just to give a little kick of his back foot and he cartwheeled out of that cave and unfortunately went right from the top all the way to the bottom. And, uh, that was, that was pretty tough to watch. Um, never liked seeing that. I've walked up on more than a couple mountain goats. Um, when you get to the bottom and there's a horn or two missing. So, that's never a good thing, but, uh, we ended up getting down to him and he was completely intact, not a, not a scratch on him. So it was kind of miraculous. That's awesome. And it sounds like he was relatively low elevation, right? He was below, like he was in some scrubs and stuff. So it wasn't high up. So I guess that probably helped a little bit with a bunch of fo uh, foliage and stuff like that, that helped prevent the. Yeah, the there's stuff. foliage around, but, uh, the the terrain in there is kind of it's it's not like really sharp jagged rocks it's more like uh clay and like really hard pan type uh sedimentary rock and and, and volcanic rock and stuff like that so so he goes down so what do you do obviously you know you anchored him you've got three good shots into him he's at the bottom of the valley so what's what's your thoughts at that point like oh shit or here we go or what are you thinking uh it's a bit of a mixed bag you know there's always like of course some uh some high fives and hugs and some uh woohoos that are going on and and then it kind of settles in as you know uh <laughs> once the animal goes down that's when the work starts and uh being that the fact that he rolled all the way down to the bottom uh our work load got immensely uh bigger at that point so yeah, we, I, I was pretty, um, just nervous, I guess I'd say the whole time walking down to him, not really knowing what to expect when we got down there. Um, but like I say, he was, he turned out he was okay. And, and then 
it was back to being happy again. And uh, then the work started. And unfortunately, we, we ran out of water. Um, we were out of water for probably four or five hours. And that was, that was tough in that hot temperatures for sure. Did you have a fairly reasonable path to get to them or was it a few hours of skirting the mountain, panicking the whole time while you're waiting to see your goat again? Uh, no, it was probably only about a half hour. Yeah, it wasn't too long. So that's, that's still long enough panic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, when you anchored him or when you first seen him, you knew he was a good goat. You knew he was like a solid billy, like, like good horns and you were really confident. But so now you shoot him. Um, did you, could you see his horns at that point when you were shooting at him at the one, 164 yards? Did you kind of know what you're dealing with and, and, uh, um, what were you thinking at that point? Cause my next question is what, what do you think when you picked up his head when you got down to him? <clears throat> so because he was so close, um, to be honest with you, I didn't even bother taking out the spotting scope. Um, I knew he was a, a good goat. Um, he was the only goat there. So <laughs> that didn't bode very well for him. Um, had there been other ones, maybe we would have uh, looked them over and, and you know, I, I, I doubt there would have been a bigger one, obviously. But, uh, you know, at 164 yards on 14 power, you get a pretty good idea of what's going on there. So um, once we actually walked up to him, my, my first thoughts were that's a lot bigger than my, my, uh, uh than the other goat that we had gotten in that area. <clears throat> and I knew that that goat was a, a really nice goat. So I knew definitely that it was a, a book mountain goat. I never could have in my wildest dreams have imagined it would have been a world record. I don't think anyone goes out in the woods with a tag in their pocket and expects to come home with a, a new world record. You know, I'm, I'm just happy to, to go out there, share some laughs, have some good times, get some fresh air, take some nice pictures, hopefully bring some meat home. And, uh, to me, it's always about the size of the experience, not the size of the horns. So, I've been fortunate enough to shoot a, a few really nice animals in my day, but uh, it's always kind of like the icing on the cake. It's a bonus at that point. So, yeah, absolutely phenomenal. So, you guys get up to them now. What what time of day are you looking at? So you've you've been on them for a long time. Is it like three four o'clock in the afternoon, or where were you at time wise? Yeah, we were getting late afternoon by that point. Um, being the fact that we had no water left, <clears throat> all the water that we had there, we had to pack in. There was there was no water uh, source available. So we were pretty determined to get back to camp. Uh, we had a few liters of water back at camp. Um, and then the, the amount of grizzly bear sign that we encountered in there was enough. Like we were done by that point. I mean, we had just spent a week uh, in the mountains on a sheep hunt, probably put on a good 50 to 60 K. Um, we did our entire pack out, uh, a 22 kilometer pack out with a ram on our backs in one day. Um, cause we didn't, you know how it is. Once you get that pack all sewn up, you don't, you don't want to break it open and tear all your stuff out again. So, I mean, we got out really late that night 
uh, had a super big day and then a big hike in and then a big epic day. But we weren't really too keen on uh, sleeping with that goat with that many bears around, um, especially having seen a lot of activity in the area. And I think there was like one or two cold beers at the truck that were calling my <laughs> name. So, you know, there was a little extra motivation to get out of there and, uh, you know, have some uh, junk food at the truck and, and stuff. Cause I had actually forgotten the fuel bottle for the stove on this, on that trip. Big mistake. We were eating cold mountain <laughs> house and cold coffee for breakfast and it was terrible. So we didn't really want to have a repeat of the previous night's dinner. So yeah, we just kept hiking and I think we got out about 11 o'clock at night. So pretty big day. Um, now when you're obviously you're an experienced goat guy, was your buddy, did he know anything about goats? Like obviously he'd been in the mountains before, but did he, did he, did he go, Holy crap, that's a pretty big goat or what was the dialogue between the two of you? Um, I think that's probably one of the, I think he may have got one goat, um, many years ago, but it was, it was pretty small. Um, I mean, let's face it, any mountain goat that you walk up on is just absolutely gorgeous. Like they are just like, they're, they're just so stoic and beautiful and like that white long hair and the contrast between the white hair and the black horns and the black lips. Like you're kind of just enamored with them, just looking at them. Um, horn size aside, every single one of them is just so beautiful. And the amount of respect that I have for those animals living where they live and, uh, crawling around on those rocks and cliffs and, and, and doing what they do. Like, I think any, anybody that is fortunate enough to take a mountain goat, um, that, that in itself is a trophy in my, in my eyes. Yeah. Especially a world record one. Yeah. Well, Um, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, when did this all start? When did it hit you in the face that you killed something like, you know, it sounds to me like you never really even crossed your mind that it would be, you know, a 60 inch goat. It'd be the world record. It was like, you knew, you knew you killed something special, but you didn't realize it. So when did that hit you? Was it another buddy? Was it the CI? When was it that, that you went, Holy crap, this is crazy. Yeah. So when I got back home here to Cranbrook, I obviously took it in for the compulsory inspection and uh, the fellow that was doing the inspection, he just kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. And finally, he just looks at me and he says, you, you know what you got here there, son? And I said, yeah, pretty nice mountain goat. And he said, he said that's the biggest damn goat I've ever seen. He's like, because obviously he did some uh, quick horn measurements. And he's like, <clears throat> you know, like a big, big goat for down here is like 10 inches. He's like, I see lots between eight and 10. He's like, I've ne- I don't know if I've ever seen much over 10, to be honest with you. I was like, oh, I, sure. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a nice one, I guess. Whatever you say. <clears throat> and he said, I really think you should uh, go talk to this fellow um, by the name of Grant Markowski. <clears throat> he's an older gentleman, um, hardcore hunter, really awesome guy. But uh, he's an official Boone and Crockett score based here in Cranbrook. And so I got Grant's number um, 
from the inspector, gave Grant a shout, told him I had a nice goat. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you do there, bud. <laughs> Why don't you bring it over and <laughs> we'll have a look at it. Um, and I brought it over and I pulled it out and he literally just had one look at it. And he's like, come in, come in, come in. And we went in down to his basement and he's like, he just, he, he whipped out a tape right away and he just put it on for the length. And he was like, you might, he's like, I don't know. Like this thing is, this thing is big. I was like, is it? And he's like, I'm like, it doesn't look that big to me. And he's like, no, you don't understand. This thing is huge. Like you might have the new world record here. I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, I don't know. Like um, he was, he was, he was honestly more excited than I was. Um, I guess it just hadn't really dawned on me and soaked in like the significance of it. Him having, cause I've never scored an animal in my life. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I've never put a tape on any animal I've ever harvested. People ask me, how big was it? I said, it's a nice one. You know, it, it honestly doesn't matter to me. That's not why I'm out there. But uh, once we put a tape on it and uh, he's like, you don't understand, like, this is a big deal. And even at that point, I guess I really couldn't understand. I was just like, okay, it'll be kind of neat. I'll, I'll have my name in a book and whatever. But there's no way I could have anticipated this kind of reaction. Um this much sort of publicity and uh, excitement and, and all the stuff that sort of come along with it. It's, it's still, it still is kind of still soaking in a bit. Um, Reno blew my mind for sure. <laughs> that, that was a trip. Um, I'm just, a, I grew up in Revelstoke and, you know, a small town, seven, 8,000 people, you know, I'm, I'm not my, one for the, uh, for the city life. So, you know, it's fun to go visit once in a while, but generally by the end of a couple of days, I can't wait to get the heck out of there. So, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when we're in Reno, we could, you know, we seen your rock star status and it was pretty, it's cool to watch. And, you know, the one thing Greg and I have talked about, and we mentioned earlier in the podcast is just your quiet humbleness, you know, you know, you're not getting caught up in it. And, uh, but the reality is, is, you know, we hear about the Chadwick Ram. We hear about the Milo Hansen buck, and your name is going to be attached to this thing for a long time. And it's one thing to to kill a you know a book buck or book you know animal, but to kill the world record that's that's next level, man. That's that's really crazy. And uh, I have to say, it's really inspiring to hear someone talk, say the things that you're talking about about you know. Uh, you know, how can we help conservation with this messaging? Like I, I've got this privilege now, how can we do something with it? And uh, it's really inspiring. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm 42 now. So, you know, I'm, I'm starting to settle down a little bit and uh, starting to just look at life a little bit differently. I think you start, as you get a bit older, you start to reflect upon, you know, your, your time here. Um, the people that you've been able to create relationships with and, and what type of a legacy, I guess you want to leave behind. Um, I've, I've had the urge to want to step into a role and, and do something um, for conservation 
for probably the last, you know, few years anyways, but I just never really, you know, I, I bought memberships um, to, to obviously the wild sheep society. Um, I, I bought a membership into the backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, obviously now that I got the world record goat, I had to buy an RMGA membership, <laughs> but you know, to me, conservation goes a lot. It, to me, it means a lot more than just purchasing a, a hundred dollar membership. Um, I, I want to get out, uh, in those mountains. I want to work side by side, uh, with biologists, with other hunters, get my hands dirty. Um, I'll, I'll cut trees. I'll pull garbage out of streams. I'll help do counts. I mean, I really am willing to do anything to, uh, to really give back. Um, I had that sort of attitude before this happened, <clears throat> but now that I've been blessed with such an amazing gift, it's, it's almost like I feel obligated to in a good way though. It's something I want to do and that I should do. And it's almost like it's something I feel like I have to do. So yeah. Oh, that, that's inspiring, man. And, you know, with uh, the conservation world, we talk about this internally about there's three things you can give, time, treasure, and talent, right? And, um, you know, time kind of almost being the most important, but treasure, you know, people's money, that's important, of course. And then the talent. And, you know, you talked about giving your time, but also now you, kind of your talent. You've got a special something that no one else can. You've got a story to tell. And, you know, you inspiring others to get more involved and do more the, for conservation is, you know, that's that's something that you can give back to. And you're, you're doing that. I can see it. I can see what's happening here. And it's really, really exciting to see that and, and uh, really inspiring. Yeah, uh, definitely. There's some doors that are, you know, beginning to be cracked open. Um, I don't. I don't know what what's going to happen, but I'm I'm totally open to uh, listening to any type of offers or suggestions on um, how I can best use this experience, this goat, and my talents towards contributing something back. Um, whatever's going to be a good fit, um, you know this this whole conservation piece is is relatively new to me as far as doing it on in a you know, in a, in a public sort of in the public's eye, I've, I've kind of tried to do my own part personally out in the mountains, you know, by being a, a good steward of the land and stuff. But, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I, the, the, I, I wrote a story obviously about this hunt and, uh, Boone and Crockett's, uh, fair chase, had actually, uh, they're they're offering to to print it in the summer edition of the 2023 Fair Chase magazine, and I've decided that I am going to take the proceeds from the sale of that story and contribute it back to conservation. Um, I'm also open to, um, obviously, the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. They're they're pretty keen on maybe getting a replica or something as a <laughs> as something to tote around to all their conventions and uh, pub nights and stuff as a way to sort of attract new members, which I think is fantastic. I mean, who wouldn't want to come out for a, a pint of beer and, and come check out the biggest uh, mountain goat in the world? And 
that's when you kind of sucker them in and hit them up for a membership. So if, if yeah. that's one way that I can help, then uh, obviously I'm, I'm more than willing to do so. Yeah, very cool. Um, Justin, you talked about being in Reno and being inspired at Sheep Week and seeing what's going on down there, but then you also talked about the flip side of that, about maybe a little, um, you know, seeing what's going on in BC here and and how, you know, why maybe we aren't doing a little bit better. What what was your takeaway from from Sheep Week and, and your experience there and, and sort of, you know, getting down there and seeing what conservationists are doing and comparing it to what you're seeing up here across the, the border? It's, it's a, a very proactive approach down in the States. Um, I've never seen that kind of passion, dedication, and um, just an overall willingness to like do whatever it takes to continue carrying on that legacy and that heritage um, as hunters my personal take on how we've sort of done it here in Canada is we've sort of relied upon the fact that we are this big, beautiful, amazing country with tons and tons of wildlife and diversity, but we've done that for 40 or 50 years. Um, there comes a time when, you know, I, I equate that to like having natural talent. Like if you're a, a naturally gifted hockey player, natural talent can only take you so far. At some point, you're going to have to put the work in to hone your skills, to become better, to become elite. And I think in Canada, we're, we're, we're at that sort of tipping point where we need to decide what kind of future it is that we want to have. Are we okay with just the status quo, the way things are right now? Or do we want to get it back to what it used to be? Um, I mean, I'm not that old. I've only been hunting for 25 years, but in that short amount of time, uh, I've personally seen big changes out, out in the landscape. Um, I've seen a lot of opportunities disappear. I've seen what I perceive to be some, some mismanagement. Um, I'm not, I don't claim to be a biologist, so I, I can't really speak to as to why some of those decisions are being made. All I know is that uh, a lot of really intelligent people that spend a lot of time out in the bush, a lot of time out in the mountains, a lot of time with those animals, it's baffling to them too. So yeah, it'd be great to sort of have some explanations as to maybe the reasoning um, about some of the decisions that are being made uh, in this province anyway. I can't speak to any of the other provinces, but in British Columbia, you know, I lived up north for three years and, and I got a stone sheep every year I was up there and I found out I was moving to Cranbrook and I was like, oh boy, now I get to go chase a Rocky, finally. And just as I moved here, it went to LEH. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, um, I'm all about doing whatever it takes to like preserve um, those animals. And, and if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. But there's a lot of other things that could be done that I would perceive to be more effective. Um, you know, the, the fellow that I was on this uh, mountain goat hunt with is a, a wildlife biologist. Uh, his sister is a wildlife biologist. 
his dad is a wildlife biologist. So they know animals and, uh, and he actually works for parks Canada and he did his masters um, and thesis on the use of wildfire for wildlife enhancement. So <clears throat> that's one of the biggest things I think that we could do to help wildlife uh, around here in the East Kootenays anyways, because there's been so much suppression going on for the last hundred or so years. Um, sheep especially are, are really sensitive to, to um, suppressing fires. Um, and they have last year they did, they, they did do some burning around Premier Lake and up at Bull Mountain. And it's great to see. I, I just think we need to continue that momentum um, and keep pushing forward with that kind of stuff. Oh, and we we don't disagree yeah. with you on that either. We're we're always constantly pushing for the burns. That's a that's a tough oh, one to get off. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a reason why we as hunters go target old burns, naturally caused burns, right? Um, they're great habitat. There's great forage, uh, providing that they're done right. You know, the, all the nutrients are released out of the soils. When you get these big burns that are happening naturally, when they've been suppressed and they're and they're burning to such a high intensity, um, it's actually counterproductive because they burn so hot that the soil just gets scorched. Um, there was a big fire just north of town here two years ago by Lazy Lake. And I was like, oh, great. That's going to be awesome habitat. There's going to be a ton of animals in there. But having spent a bit of time hiking around in there, there's not really a ton of growth coming back in there. And I've spent some time behind the, the spotting scope in there, and I really haven't turned up too much. And it's it's quite surprising. And I think just because it burnt with such a, a vigorous intensity that nothing will grow back in there for a long time. So we sort of need to prevent that if we can well you know you talk about that and you know you've seen the inspiration down south and then we look at bc here and the, the one thing that i take away over and over and over is the lack of investment in british columbia that we put and you know it's like you said you're we take it for granted we've got so much um goodness so for for so many years and we never really were putting back like investing in it like they do and a lot of you know i don't have the stats but uh, there was a infographic put out a few years ago and it was floating around and it was really well done but our investment in wildlife uh, for what we have is is paltry compared to so many places down south and it's it's really disheartening and i think that's like it just is wildlife important and are we investing in it and we're just not investing in it and that, that's the frustrating part for me yeah and i mean <clears throat> just talking to uh, some some american folks down there these people can't even begin to wrap their mind around that we can go buy a mountain goat tag over the counter for whatever it is, $50. Like these guys are willing to drop thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on these tags. And, and if they're lucky enough to, to get drawn, it's, it's legitimately only a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, the diversity of animals that we have here, there's nowhere else like it on earth. Like it, it truly is unique and special in that regard. Um, I know myself getting to know the Boone and Crockett club a little bit and doing a little bit of research on, on the uh, Pittman Robertson fund. 
that that is what we need here. I I I know myself. Um, Sixteen dollars for a deer tag. I would be willing to pay fifty right now if the government promised to put the additional thirty dollars more than what it costs right now. If that were to go back into wildlife, I would have absolutely no problem paying that extra money. I'd pay $200 for a stone sheep tag, $200 for a mountain goat tag, knowing that that money is going back into wildlife. And I'm, I'm just curious, like what, what you guys would, would you be willing to pay more for a tag if, if you knew that money was going back in? Yeah, hundred percent without question. And, and in fact, there's a Fish and Wildlife Habitat Coalition that's actually put a request to the government for that. Minister to Wildlife Advisory Council has asked for that. So there's regulatory bodies or, or established coalitions out there that are asking for that. Um, you know, so there's, there is an appetite. But I think we need to start with all revenue from wildlife tag sales has to go to wildlife. And it doesn't even do that. Like that, that would be a great starting point for starters. Like, Well, 100%. Um, I mean, I think there's like a a five or seven percent surcharge on those tags that ends up going back to wildlife which is yeah just a fraction of the co- uh, of the of the total cost of the tag um yeah it's just baffling to me i, I can't really wrap my mind around it um because <clears throat> at the end of the day us as hunters and outdoorsmen and conservationists trying to put wildlife back on the land and keep them there that benefits society on a whole like not just hunters when you go for a walk or a hike or go camping or or you're out there doing a painting or doing wildlife photography like everyone benefits from having wildlife on the land not just hunters we just happen to be the most passionate about it and we have that being said we need to be the ones to take charge and take the lead and be leaders in this movement. But I think in order for it to um, be successful, we have to bring everyone else along with us and make them understand. We don't just want animals on the landscape so that we can go hunt them. You know, some of my, my best memories and my greatest hunts are of just simply watching animals. You know, like if you've ever sat on a band of rams for eight hours and just watch them do their thing, I don't go back to camp at the end of the day and just and be down um, being like, oh, darn, we didn't get one today. I'm on a high. I'm like, that was so amazing. What a privilege to just watch those animals in their natural environment doing what they do. You know, it's 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 inspirational. I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, we we have to continue to do better, and we have to continue to advocate for. And we just, you know, um, and I, I think too, you know, we we have to find new innovative ways to to support these, you know, because the what we've been doing clearly isn't working. So, what's that involved? And I, I don't obviously don't have all the answers, um, but we need to find new innovative ways to to be proactive. It's, I, I don't know if you guys know who Force Gallant is. It's uh, he's got his own show on. Uh, discovery i think it is and he just does a fantastic job of on the conservation thing and he's like you know what some of these species continue to go extinct you know we're seeing caribou in, in down south and and to be seen some capacity here and 
we have to find new ways to be innovative because whatever we're doing isn't working. And uh, so we, you know, we we just have to be proactive and keep hammering. And it's pretty inspiring to hear that. You know, you've seen that you've been down there and you've 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 seen what other organizations are doing and what other jurisdictions are doing. And there are some pretty good success stories. You look at wild sheep. You know, if we look in BC here, you know, we can't claim to have this amazing record for uh, restoring wild sheep. But if you look down south. You know what, what they said? Twenty-five thousand bighorn sheep was the lowest they ever were in the '60s, and now they're they're pushing a hundred thousand, right? So we're we're seeing success stories, but um, you know, just not not necessarily right here. Yeah, I think it comes down to <clears throat> genuinely wanting to put wildlife first, and it seems like in today's political landscape, it's more of a popularity contest. Mm-hmm. Someone, someone needs to step up and, and say, "Hey, um, this is what's actually important." And and then it's and then it's their duty and job to like help other people see that and understand that. Um, I don't think that. <clears throat> obviously, there's you know some people in the city that are opposed to predator calling and and stuff like that. But I don't. I can't see anyone in Vancouver being uh, opposed to like creating some overpasses outside of Invermere so that sheep can walk over the highway instead of getting hit by them, you know, things of that nature. I don't see why people are, are against uh, doing some prescribed burning. Um, these are all things, those are things, that's where you got to start. Start small and work your way up, you know. <clears throat> Yeah, and even on the predator side of things, you know, it's not overly popular, but that's one thing we've seen that this current, you know, leadership in BC through the NDP government, they have stayed the course on on caribou recovery, right? They, you know, they they're still out there removing wolves off the landscape and it's pretty pretty exciting to see because we're seeing some recoveries there. So, when you actually do put wildlife as a priority instead of people's feelings, actually there's some positive outcomes that come from it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important to touch on those success stories because they're, it's not all doom and gloom. They are doing some really good things out there. Um, I, one of my close personal friends is actually doing wildlife capture up North in uh, region seven and doing a lot of collaring and studying and some, some predator management up there. And just over the la- course of the last couple of years, uh, he said it's nothing for them to go out in a day and see a hundred moose out of the helicopter, which is, which is great. You know, it's, it's great to, to know that the, those moose are making a comeback. And <clears throat> I mean, there's so many instances we can look at even like it's, it that doesn't pertain to hunting, but fishing, for example, they're resilient. If you're willing to put some time in and fix up the streams and, and close it down for a little bit, I mean, they come back with, with like vigorously, right? I, I just heard a stat. I was on Rogan's podcast with Forrest Galan again, and he said, if we don't fish the ocean for eight years, it will continue, it will go back to its original state. Like it would be like, it, it would make a full recovery, but it would take eight years of not harvesting anything, which yeah. of course the planet would die. We'd starve to death. But oh, yeah. that said, <laughs> it goes to show you how quick, you know, what wildlife and the resource will rebound if you, if you just, if you do the right things and you take care of it. Right. Absolutely. So, okay. So we're coming up on an hour here and you've been very kind with your time, Justin, and we're really grateful, but 
So what's your swan song? Are you going to go out and kill the new Chadwick, the new, the new Kaluski Ram this fall, or what? what's your plan now? Um, that would be nice, but I think uh, a more a more realistic uh, goal would be for me to try and get the number two uh, mountain goat on that list now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll always, cool. I'm still looking for my first 40-incher. Um, that would be my swan song, to be honest with you. If I could, if I could get a 40 inch stone sheep this, this summer, um, you wouldn't find a happier guy in BC. I'll tell you right now. Very cool. So now with your goat, do you think that that goat that you killed was the one you seen when you're in there a few years back? Are you pr- pretty sure it's the same one or no, not necessarily? No. Okay. I don't, not at all. Cause three years had passed and, uh, this this goat, which actually one of the side notes on it, is only eight years old. That's was going to ask how old or what did he age him at? Yeah, that's it. That was oh. that was kind of the consensus at the at the sheep show in Reno. There, a lot of really experienced, knowledgeable uh, guides and outfitters and biologists, and everyone kind of had a look. and And eight years old seems to be the the consensus. So, three years ago, that thing would have only been five years old. Um, probably only like eight inches long. So yeah, I don't think that was the one. And so was your goat, this one you got, is he, was he fairly healthy? Did he have teeth? What did he look like? Absolutely perfect. Really? Wow. So what would he look like in three or four years or whatever, two years, whatever? I don't even know, to be honest with you. Wow. Yeah. I mean, all the stars obviously had to align. Everything has to has to be perfect for an animal to have that kind of growth. I think in his first two years, uh, he was eight inches at two years old, <laughs> which is that, that right there, people could not wrap their minds around, uh, at the sheep show. Like they literally pulled out the tape and looked at the first major ring, which indicates the the second year of growth. And, uh, and I actually did it when I got home here. I had to, I had to pull it out and double check for myself. And yeah, it's it's eight inches at two years old. So, I mean, obviously there was some good winter, uh, some some mild winters. The the mother when she was nursing, obviously she was in tip top shape. Um, there was no stress. I'm I'm thinking from predation. There was no slips, trips, and falls that uh, you know hindered his growth. Um, and obviously there has to be the best mineral lick in the country <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in the near vicinity of where he was. I don't know where it is, but I'm, I'm assuming there's a good mineral lick close by cause it's, it's basically like he was on steroids. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Really cool. Okay. So, I, uh, what rifle were you shooting? What, uh, what caliber, what, um, a seven mm mag. Cool. That was big enough to anchor me. <laughs> Just, well, yeah, I did make a little bit of a mistake there. We we were up in the mountains uh, for sheep, and and I have my one hundred and fifty grains, which is more than adequate for a sheep. And I had some one hundred and seventy fives along for that trip, and I forgot to make the exchange. Um, okay. I think maybe if I had those one hundred and seventy fives in the tube there, he might have not kicked himself off the the cliff, but it's kind of neither here nor there at this point. He's all intact in one piece. And, uh, 
yeah, I'm looking forward to actually getting them all done up and uh, mounted. It's, it's going to be a phenomenal mount. So, Are you doing a life-size or you do pedestal? What are you going to do with them? <clears throat> well, believe it or not, I, I wasn't even going to – I had no intentions of even mounting a mountain goat uh, when I went out this summer because I already have a, a half mount. Um, I love to have – you know, some, some beautiful animals on the wall, but I don't want every square inch of my house covered in, in animal heads. So I was like, I already have a goat. That's good enough. Once again, I'm kind of just out there for the fun of it, do a Euro or something. And then obviously once we, uh, got that one, you knew you had to mount them, but, uh, I was just going to do a shoulder mount, but, uh, there was a taxidermist down in Reno that offered me a full life-size mount for free which is like an eight thousand dollar touch for free just so he could have his name on the biggest mountain goat ever killed which i'm assuming would be really good publicity so i think i'm gonna take him up on his offer um obviously i don't have a life-size cape but uh he's got connections and i'll have to dish out a probably a couple thousand bucks, but you know, end of the day, it's the world record. I think I owe it to the animal. Um, I owe it to everyone else. That's going to come look at that animal to see him as he was, you know, living out in those, in those mountains before, before I was able to harvest them. So, well, you know, I, I, I can't even perceive what you're living. Like, you know, you're, you're living this surreal experience that, but I look at the Chadwick Ram, for example, right? And, you know, they keep them in, um, at the uh, Jack O'Connor Center and uh, it's a like a, a half mount or something like that. And it's like, you know, something like that deserves a full mount. And, you know, you, you talk about legacy, you know, that ram, that that goat is going to be around, you know, I guess, I guess bearing something happening to it, but it's, you know, that Chadwick Ram is still out there and it's still people, you know, people die to see the real thing. It's just, it, it's just amazing to, to go and experience that. So, yeah, I think, you know, doing that is, is in itself is because somewhere down the road, you know, and maybe it's kids or whatever or family has it, or maybe it's in a museum somewhere in the middle of, you know, really yeah. important place where people can I, see I could it. definitely see something like that. Um, you know, seeing, <laughs> I'm telling you, the highlight of that show was sitting at that table and just looking at people's facial expressions and just the the excitement and the happiness and the the amazement in their eyes was just like, it was worth the price of admission, you know, and getting to shake hands and talk and, and get to know those people. And, 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 and you know what the awesome thing was? They were, everyone was just genuinely, genuinely happy for me which was amazing. It just speaks to how, or like how good a people hunters are. There wasn't one jealous person in that room. And, or if they were, they definitely didn't come out and say it, you know, (laughs) they were all really genuinely happy for me. And that just like made my heart feel good. So. Awesome. Well, I I can think of a more deserving guy, a more humble guy and um, just, congratulations to you and uh you know it's a great testament to you as you're as a hunter and uh and you know just all the stuff you're saying after the fact that uh it's really inspiring and really really excited to 
to know you and to watch your journey, man. I'm really happy for you. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Greg, you got anything, uh, any last questions for Justin? We could uh, wrap it up, let him get on with his evening. You know, we, we skipped over an important part this whole time, guys. We never uh, said what the official score was on that bad boy. Oh, <laughs> uh, it, uh, it grossed uh, 60 and 5 eighths, and there was a 1 eighth deduction. So uh, final net on it was 60 and 4 eighths. Even an eighth deduction is crazy, right? Like that's well, the that's... just the symmetry on it's just incredible. Yeah, wow, damn near perfect. Yeah, the the one fellow for Boone and Crockett really put it in a neat way. Uh, he pulled out his phone and the calculator there, and he punched in the math. He said, "Your your goat beat the world record by five percent." He said, "Now, if you were, you know, because a lot of people don't understand mountain goats are more about whitetails." He said that would be like the Milo Hansen buck getting beat by like, it was like 13 or 14 inches or some damn thing, <laughs> which I think people can more relate to that. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a beast. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that I can actually come down and uh, bring it down to Kamloops for you guys' convention there. So we would love to awesome. have it. Are you, do you think you're off for that or what's, uh, what's your plan? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kind of just got the invite there the other night and just checked my schedule and I think I can make it work. So I'd love to bring it down for all the locals in BC to come check out and have a look. And, you know, it's it's kind of funny. Everyone down there was like looking at it, but staying about three feet away from it. And I'm like, pick it up, <laughs> grab it, take a picture with it. Like, you'll never get another chance like this in your life. Like, yeah, hold it touch it, look at it, like get some pictures, you know, you're not going to break it. So yeah, I'd like to be able to do that. So hopefully I'll be able to see you guys down there. Awesome. Well, yeah, well, yeah, we got to make that happen for sure. We'd love to have you. And uh, the cool thing is, is, you know, I didn't realize, you know, I'd heard rumblings and I kind of knew that this was going on, but I, I met you in Sheep Week and then uh, I, I look you up on our, you're on our list. I'm like, oh, right on. He's uh, he's already a wild sheep BC member. So we're we're super grateful, man. Super stoked for you. And I know you're a diehard sheep hunter too. So just, it's going to be fun to watch your journey. Just congratulations, buddy. Well-deserved. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for reaching out to me. And uh, anytime you guys want to talk or uh, hang out or whatever, you know, I'm always down. And uh let me know how and what I can do uh, in order to make a difference with conservation in BC here. Um, you definitely, you guys have my attention and I'm willing to focus some efforts towards it. So you just, you let me know. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, guys. Cool. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.